John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1077.JE0113, certificate number 23607. Rolled Amundsen's airship. Come take a trip in my airship. Come take a sail among the stars. Come have a ride around the Now, a common complaint we hear about the omnibus in our own era is that there's just not enough aviation. Not enough aviation and not enough Scandinavian content. Not enough Arctic content. (laughs) Can you guys do more shows that mention Alaska and airplanes in Alaska? Alaska airplanes. That's Uh, going to be an episode. So this is a little bit on brand for us, maybe a little on the nose for us. But usually I would be the one doing Arctic airplane stuff. Which is why yesterday I texted you and said, hey, John, listener Angus Wilson has requested Roald Amundsen's airship as his number one choice. Would you be interested? And you, Mr. Arctic Aviation, said, eh. Did I say, eh? I mean, is that a thing that I communicated over text? You said, we already did the chill Coot Pass, kind of. What's it called? The Chill Chill Coot Chill Trail. Coot yeah. Trail. Yeah, and that was also on his list. Kind of. Yeah, um, I was like, how many? How many are we going to give this guy? Uh, but he is a Patreon contributor. That's why we're even entertaining this notion. At the, I should know this. At the uh, what fifty? Yes, at the fifty dollar level. At the level at which you are able to send us uh, show topic suggestions and have us take those seriously and not just steal them in the night. Although we did kind of steal Chill Coot trail from him from him yeah do you but think, i was that was are on you saying my he list. Got, did he get a bonus or did he get did he get ripped off chilkoot trail <laughs> and and uh, um and soapy smith have been on my list since the very beginning because those are things i have a very personal connection to and whereas for, rolled amundsen's airship, airship. I, I i didn't right I, i've never been on his airship you're not a steampunk i'm not a steampunk i don't have a brass top hat and i've never been to antarctica whereas you have 
Yes, I've been as far away as you can be from the North Pole. That uniquely qualifies me. <laughs> Full disclosure, uh, our friend Angus also thought the Svalbard Seed Vault would be a great idea for a show. Right. But you and I have been wanting to do that for, for both, months. On both of our lists. Come on, Angus. I mean, it's the premise of Omnibus, basically, yes. is that we are making a seed vault. It's, Although It's uh, Omnibus in, in floral form. The more research I do on the actual seed vault, the less it seems like it's analogous to Omnibus. Oh, is that right? It has a whole different. It's a whole different setup. We'll do, cover do, that on the seed vault episode. Do, do they wear pants while they uh, <laughs> while they maintain their vault? Listen, on? I'm wearing pants. They're just shorts. These, I didn't. I, I learned a long time ago not to greet you in my underwear. You took off the leather gloves. You were wearing Arctic gloves for this for this special. You couldn't type. I'm guessing it's hard. It's hard to operate the machinery right here with the leather gauntlets. These are gauntlets properly. They go all the way to the elbow. Is that the difference between a glove and a gauntlet? Is how far up it goes? <laughs> well, uh, yes, I believe. Well, I'll throw down this gauntlet right now. Will you slap me? Go. Will you slap me in the face with it? <laughs> will you challenge me? We're sitting six feet away, so we can't actually. Ah! Oh! Ah! Oh! Varlet, take that! Uh, and even though I asked you why you had the gloves, I never really got an answer I was satisfied with. Well, that's part of our relationship. <laughs> How many times do you ask me a thing and you're not satisfied with the answer? You suddenly appear percent of the time with a leather with a leopard skin <laughs> blanket to oh, to wear like a shawl and gloves. And I said, "Oh, are you wearing gloves because you're cold?" And you said, "No." <laughs> <laughs> Listeners may think that you are you are exaggerating or just inventing. But, in fact, that is an accurate description. If they have heard the program before, (laughs) they may have a pretty good idea that I'm not inventing. Have you ever flown over the North Pole? (laughs) No. (laughs) Because I have flown over the North Pole. Wait, you flew over the North Pole? I've flown directly over the North Pole. What what happens? You leave from northern Alaska? It it was not even from northern Alaska. It was, um, do you remember the, uh, the airline Sabina? Yeah, or Belgian, maybe? It was the Belgian National Airline. Is it not anymore? Did Belgium, Belgium denationalize its carrier? Uh, it, it went away, I think, in the early 2000s, and it's one of those things that I think probably they got bought by Pan Am. Or, <laughs> or, <laughs> well, that, in hindsight. They, got, they, were, they were absorbed into something, uh, Virgin Airlines or KLM. Or Ooh, Sabina is a, an acronym for the Société Anonyme Belge d'Exploitation de la Navigation. Yeah. The Anonymous Society, which is a corporation. Like right. it's, it's anonymous in that the uh, shareholders for are the ex- uh, exploration and navigation of the air. For the exploitation of navigation. The exploitation of navigation. Why of are the they air? exploiting navigation? Well, they're Belgians. You've met a few. Come on, Belgium. They went bankrupt in 2001, and now it's Brussels Airline. That's what happened. So. Well, I flew a Sabina flight from Anchorage to Brussels. Wait, Sabina ran nonstops to Anchorage? <laughs> they did. <What? laughs> was there a mass influx of Belgians who wanted to uh, what ride dog sleds? It was the it was the golden age of air aviation. I don't rem- I don't know if you recall, but <laughs> for why for, is the early eighties the golden age of aviation? <laughs> for for futurelings. Uh, uh, I, let me let me paint a picture for you. Describe a time when um, when airlines routinely operated flights that were one third full. You could you would almost always have the whole row to stretch out, you or if just, not, you would go to the back of the plane and find a row to stretch out. In. You would just get on the plane and and walk past. You could greet every single other passenger by name. Um, they were wonderful times, and it was I think because gasoline was cheap. 
Efficiency having not yet been invented. There was no, it nothing had, <laughs> there was no amount of like, uh, what was the deal? Were fares higher? Were we paying more in, in adjusted dollars? Probably. I, I I think we hadn't we hadn't entered into the era of dramatic price slashing airline competition. And so there there wasn't this kind of false economy of uh, the cheapest ticket you can get is $199 and then every single thing additional, you know, the, the use of the bathrooms is a $50 surcharge or whatever it is. How, however they run airlines now. Many fewer people were flying, even in this country, I, th- I think. But you could also go to the airport and buy a plane ticket in cash on the day of the flight. This is my know? favorite thing in movies where people <laughs> ask, when is your next flight to, like it's a bus station, mm-hmm. when is your next flight to uh, Charlotte? And they'll be told. I, I, I don't know if I told you this the other, uh, last year, a little, uh, like about a year ago, I had a friend in Montana who died and I sort of waffled about whether or not to attend the funeral. It was in January. It was, it was harsh and it was, and he died under sad conditions. It was kind of like a, it just felt like, ah, going to this funeral is going to be a real downer. But at the last minute, I realized I needed to be at this funeral. It wasn't a question of whether it was a downer for me. Like, I needed to be there, his family, and so forth. But I was in Seattle. It was January 5th or something, and I needed to be in Butte the following morning. And I drove to the airport and went to Alaska Airlines ticket counter, and there was nobody there. And I was like, well, what am I supposed to do? I'm, I want to fly to Montana. And I asked around. I found some guy pushing a broom. And he was like, uh, I mean, you know, you can talk to somebody over, you know, pointed to some office. I went over there. And they were like, if you want to get a ticket, you have to go online and buy a ticket. And I said, I'm here at the airport. I just want to get a ticket. Your next ticket to Montana. And they were like, you have to pull out your phone and get a ticket online. They they do not sell tickets at the airport. They wouldn't do it for any. They they can't. He couldn't get on his computer and ticket ticket tech. They don't know how, and they just <laughs> and they looked at me like dumbly, and so I went standing there online, and the there there was a flight, it was it had not left yet, but I was under the hour right. Uh, like blank out period to purchase the ticket, and so I couldn't buy it on my phone, even though if I if it, been standing there, I could have bought a ticket and run through the, it was the middle of the night. And so I had to go home, buy a ticket for the following day. I ended up flying to Missoula and renting a car. It's a security thing. People trying to buy a last minute ticket to Butte are going to blow up the plane. They they were, they didn't want you on there. Of all the places that you're going to try and blow up a plane, Seattle to Butte on January 5th in the middle of the night seems like the least likely. Well, you could try to hijack a plane elsewhere and try to Get it to take you to Butte. Do you think a plane has ever been hijacked to Butte, Montana? Butte? <laughs> During the we, period when Butte was a was a republic, we represent the Funeral Liberation <laughs> Army. We demand this plane be redirected to Butte, Montana. Anyway, nowadays it looks like if you were if you were going to fly from Anchorage to Brussels, it does not appear that the route would take you over the pole, but in fact. When I flew that route, we went directly over the pole. And the captain... The captain announced? The captain was like, we are now over the North Pole. 
I don't know why he had a, a weird Dutch accent. But. His Belgian accent. <laughs> uh, and it was very exciting, you know, to be, because it was, uh, it was one of those, it was, it was uh, in the winter and the moon was out. And from 30,000 feet, we could look down through cloudless atmosphere and see the whole polar environment illuminated in that kind of gray blue moonlight. It was fantastic. Were you at an age where you still believed in Santa Claus? I was older than an age when I explicitly believed in Santa Claus, but even now, can so, I, so you were like twenty three. I believe, <laughs> I believe a little in Santa Claus. But your 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 look down at his nominal environs did not change your opinion. Well, I grew up, you know, proximate to the Arctic. I could see Russia from my house, so I knew that you know that if Santa was up there. Also, I knew that the North Pole is actually like a post office box somewhere around Denali National Park. That's not where the elves are. That's just where the mail drop is. Yeah, I guess so. Like when people, like you and I are not doing this show at uh, P.O. Box 55744 <laughs> Shoreline 98155. <laughs> don't tell people that. We're inside the box. We got one of the larger ones and we don't pay rent. It's like those guys that live out of their storage lockers after the divorce. Uh, What's the furthest north you've been? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's a plane doing a great circle route if we're counting that. Yeah. If we're not counting the ground. What's the What's the furthest north on the ground you've been? Probably the fjords of central Norway somewhere. I'm trying to think of anywhere. I've never been anywhere that far north in Canada. I've never been to Alaska here. It's not that great. Mm. Uh, mostly on this show. <laughs> um, yeah, it's got to be Norway, right? I'm not looking at a map right now. Norway's pretty far north, as we will see in our story today. But, you know, on planes, we take, um, you know, on planes, you take a great circle route all the time, but never right over the pole. So uh, the latitude of Oslo is about 60 degrees north. The latitude of Fairbanks is 64 degrees north. So Norway is north. What's the furthest you've ever been on the ground? Some, some weird Alaska place? Not weird. WAP? Um, I've been, I have never been to Barrow. I was going to ask. Um, and you know, Barrow has a new name. Barrow is what? going by its Inuit name now. What is Barrow's Inuit name? I was still calling it Barrow like a chump. Um, it's the northernmost point of, uh, not of North America, but of the United States. So Barrow's, uh, Barrow's Inupiat name is Utyakvik. Utyakvik. Utkiavik. The G is silent. Don't you speak Inupuit? Inupiat? Um, an Inupiat is an idiot who doesn't Utkiavik speak. Is, is, is how you how you say it? I don't know. I'm just looking at a thing that says Utkiavik. the G is silent. Did I pronounce the G? Maybe. I don't know. Utkiavik. It's not Barrow anymore. When did that change? Uh, just a couple of years ago, and I learned that by, <clears throat> I was talking to someone, I was on one of these now ubiquitous Zoom calls with a bunch of people uh, who work at the Rasmussen Foundation in Alaska, and I was, ta- I was talking to one of the guys who lives back east. He said, well, I'm actually, you know, I'm a native Alaskan, I come from Utkiavik. And I was like, huh, Utkiavik, you know, I know like not every native village in Alaska, but a lot of them. It's like, where is Utkiavik? I don't, I'm, I'm not, I, I can't place it on a map. And he was like, 
Oh, it's what we call Barrow now. You got outwoke. <laughs> I did. And I was like, whoa, Barrow changed his name? And he was like, yeah, a couple of years ago. And I said, wow, that's great. And he was like, ah, we just did it to like mess with everybody. <laughs> no. <laughs> now you have to call it Utkiyabek. They did it to respect the indigenous peoples of the region. <laughs> they did. But they also, he, he was laughing, he felt like. He said, you know, like 80% of the people in that town are my relatives. And I feel like we definitely did it as a trolling <laughs> trolling everybody Troll people who thought they knew how to who, who liked one they could pronounce it yeah anyway it's not barrow anymore the story of arctic exploration uh by air uh dates back to i mean pretty early in the 20th century the weird thing about this time in aviation history of course is that airships lighter than air Travel, motor powered lighter than air travel was being developed at the same time as airplanes. Um, you know, there were there had been hundreds of years of experimenting with different kinds of balloons and prototype airships. Right. Um, it seems logical, right? It's much more difficult to build a to to build a thing and make it go fast enough that it could fly under motorized power than it is to like lift something up with a balloon and then. Everybody stand on one side of the bastic and huff and puff. Well, especially at a time when maybe you're getting to the point where your commercial uh, end game is to is to replace ocean liners. That's not right. something you can do in a little biplane. Right. Like there's not going to be meal service and a piano bar in the right flyer. Right. I, I can only assume unless it's like a TARDIS and it's much bigger on the inside. Um. So the two technologies were were being developed kind of in in parallel because at first you know we we would kind of imagine ah and then the airplanes replaced the airships, but no in fact they were both being developed for very different things you know in in World War One obviously both get used but for different kinds of things I mean the first the first German zeppelins were made in 1900 and the successful second uh, wave you know kind of the Windows three of the zeppelin was 1906 and Kitty Hawk is right in the middle of that. So the Wright brothers' first flight comes between the early crappy German Zeppelins and the later good German Zeppelins. <laughs> and uh, in the 1920s, Zeppelins seemed very promising for all kinds of uh, travel because, again, you can, you can kind of duplicate the ocean liner experience for a wealthy clientele just there in a gondola instead of playing shuffleboard on a deck. Um, and for Arctic exploration, there were real advantages even when good world war one era planes existed an airship for example if something goes wrong with the engine you can repair it in the air if you're in the arctic if something goes wrong with the engine and you're in a plane you're you're probably dead you have to repair it from the ice you repair it from the afterlife basically because <laughs> landing is landing is difficult as well it's extremely difficult and ice is not generally uh, arctic ice is not flat and smooth and you've landed planes I have. In the Arctic? Never on ice, I assume. I have landed a plane on skis, but it was on a flat groomed ice runway. It wasn't. It was like, like people were curling on it. I didn't just go like pick a spot on the on the sea ice and try and land it. But sea ice is not the uh, the glassy smooth sheet people might imagine. No, sea ice is a gnarly environment that it's difficult even to even to walk across. Much less imagine elves making toys. Well, they're under the ice. Oh, that's why you couldn't see it. Yeah, with our UFO master. Santa's got a <laughs> Santa's at the, There's a, a tunnel at the North Pole that leads to the hollow earth, and Santa is in there making uh, jacks in the box. 
What's interesting about lighter than air, you know, balloons and zeppelins is we don't <clears throat> we kind of think of them as a more primitive technology than than the machine of of an airplane. Or futuristic, if you're or, into steampunk. Right, or futuristic. <laughs> but uh, but the whole process of of refining gas and, you know, building fuel cells, I mean, all of this was was cutting-edge technology. Yeah, where are you getting that much hydrogen or helium in right. 1900? Right. And, That's and, a new process. And storing the, the electricity that would be necessary to, to keep, you know, that whole operation afloat would require... Or Batteries aloft. or aloft, aloft. afloat, afloat <laughs> upon the ocean of the sky, as we call it. So it would have been, and I still think of zeppelins as a uh, like kind of like electric cars, a a missed opportunity, a missed opportunity, right? <laughs> Technology that we had, and then for whatever reason, either uh, either competition or disaster kind of made it unfashionable. Oh, the humanity! But I still feel like, I mean, if I were Elon Musk, why is he not? Why does he not have a fleet of slow motion airship like deluxe Airbnbs? I assume the word slow is the problem, right? Oh, no, like that's the problem. You can't put jet engines on one of these. But it's that's such a that's such a wrong attitude. You want to be in the air as long as possible, uh, eating your bowl of warmed nuts. Here we because you're in business class. Here we are. Here we are in this time of of great. Um, Leisure, leisure. <laughs> this time, this time of uh, of like seclusion and sequester. Mm-hmm. And you and I were earlier trying to, you know, figure out what we were going to do with our kids for spring break. And all of our options involved just going someplace else and being stuck in a house and sitting in the same. <laughs> so we could do a jigsaw puzzle and uh, and make spaghetti here, right? Or we can maybe Airbnb a place, rent a house, and go do make spaghetti there. Hand sanitizer the hell out of it, and then do jigsaw puzzles and make spaghetti there. But imagine if we could get on an airship. I guess you'd have to pass some kind of fourteen day quarantine. But you like we could be just not if everyone had their own airship. Well, we could just be airshipping around, looking down, scabetti being served to us by uniformed waiters. There's a when I was a kid, I read a, a early 20th century award-winning children's book called The Twenty One Balloons. Mm-hmm. Uh, the premise is a guy builds a balloon that he can, can retire in, and he just floats around the sky in his balloon. And of course, this is not scientifically possible, which was probably clear even in the 20s when the book was written. He ends up landing on Krakatoa just in time for the explosion. Oh, There's a society there that uh, uh, where each uh, each household runs a restaurant of a different ethnicity that you rotate through in alphabetical order. I love this You place. have Argentine food, and then you have Belgian food, and then you have Czech food, or probably Chinese. What? This is anyway. a great way to to, uh, to set up a, like a monthly menu for your household. Exactly. Like I think, I think someone should, I mean, Krakatoa is not going to erupt again. Go to Krakatoa and set up this restaurant based culture. Well, we could just do it here. Like <laughs> Andorran food. Did I tell you my wife is doing this? She and her friends once a month pending uh, pandemic meet and uh, make the, make uh, dinner, make recipes from each of the countries of the world in alphabetical order. Wow. They had done Afghanistan, Albania, Algeria, Andorra, 
and Angola, and were on Antigua and Barbuda when the when the plague times hit. Those are all f- fantastic cuisines. I was so really? excited. Really? Angolan food? Yeah. I was like, what, are, what is Angolan food? I gotta get some. I mean, the great thing about this is it really privileges parts of the world that have a lot of countries. So, like, right. Afro-Caribbean food is delicious, right. and you get to have it 20 times, because right. we're not doing it by land area. Each country gets equal representation. Right. Equatorial like Guinea. It's like the food. Senate of, uh, of cuisine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I, those foods are probably going to be very... Very similar. I love hearing these stories where uh, where really the takeaway is I didn't get invited to any of these parties. I don't get invited either. Oh. It's it's wine moms. Oh, it's a wine mom. Actually, day. I don't think they're even maybe my wife is the only mom. It's 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 single mom aged well, not single, but childless mom aged uh friends of my wife. I see. So yeah, you and I <laughs> What's the acronym for that? <laughs> childless mom aged you know, friends just, of my wife. Just the C M A F O M W's. <laughs> just some more Kamafamaws. <laughs> You and I could meet on those same nights and eat snack foods in alphabetical order. Yeah, you would just eat your trail mix or your Chex mix, whatever <laughs> your favorite. I've got Chex mix, the next month we'll have Doritos, yeah. and the next month we'll have a snack food that starts with an E, and I didn't have one ready. We could just eat all the different kinds of Doritos in alphabetical order. Cool Ranch Doritos, like Extreme Doritos. <laughs> There's the one with an E, except it probably starts with an X. Uh so yeah, so I really liked, but the thing about the book I liked was the idea of just floating around in the sky and that, and it seemed so peaceful, you know, yeah. surrounded by the birds, reading his books. I mean, it's, it, I'm sure it violates many laws of thermodynamics. You couldn't actually stay in the air. You'd have to get refueled by the the plane from the beginning of Dr. Strangelove with the big air, aeronautic phallus. Mm-hmm. Um, KC-135. Yeah, giving you, giving you helium instead of jet fuel. Uh, right, or you could have some kind of gas processing like factory it machinery. It seems too heavy to support, to sustain. Like all these things that would make it work are probably too heavy to actually... It's a perpetual motion machine problem. Exactly. Um, but in the Arctic, they were a better fit. Um, you could you could also put in all the equipment and stuff you would need, which is very tricky in these little tiny World War One era planes. And interestingly, in the 1920s, when people were looking poleward, uh, Germany had lost its Zeppelin-making championship by virtue of losing world war one right <laughs> like the, the treaty of versailles specifically said and you guys can't make zeppelins right which seems a little mean that's just adding insult to injury well it's called zeppelin i mean it's like right. <laughs> it's like saying it's like saying to the italians you can no longer make spaghetti uh they i'm sure they tried that after world war ii uh so interestingly with germany now banned until the locarno pact for making Zeppelins, because in our, you know, in 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 the Allied powers' defense, they were using Zeppelins to just bomb the hell out of you. Yeah, Europe. they were war machines, but you know, they they were effective bombers only just until I mean, you know, airplane airplane technology got to the point where the Zeppelin wasn't going to be much of a transcontinental bomber. As for soon long. as you can shoot back from the ground, planes are a lot better than Zeppelins for obvious reasons. You've seen the you've seen the Zeppelins where they actually had biplanes held in slings underneath the... I've seen it in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Does yeah, that count? but they actually had them, and they would they could drop biplanes to defend themselves. And would, the, would they would they boing the planes out, or can you just drop... Can those planes start if you just drop you them? You just start the motors and drop them, and they're already flying, you know. That sounds great. Um, so Italy is now the world power of Zeppelins. Uh, can you imagine? Oh, well, I guess you, you see it in cars, yeah. like around that time. 
Like it's it's kind of funny to imagine today that if Germany lost its technical edge, Italy would pr- today probably not be the one to fill the gap. The but. Italians have an m- amazing. Uh, Back when it was just one guy twirling his mustache in a garage, yeah. Italy could do anything. But they're great. They make great machines. The Italians do. I mean, they're they're like high spirited uh, machines that need a lot of calibration and. How do they do it with their long lunch breaks? Well, and their torrid. Uh, their torrid affairs that, that rip apart the company. <laughs> if you're somebody that is not a fan of Fiat's, they're going to say they do it at the expense of Fiat's running well. Uh, but if you're <laughs> someone who is a fan of Fiat's, you're going to say that's the that's the heart of the car. It's hey, the heart of the car. Hey, it's a why the cars have so much life and a spirit. So you think there's something. Uh, Mediterranean spirit that gets infused into the engine. That's why Ferraris are so beautiful. That's why Mario okay. is really good at unclogging pipes and it's toilets. Why, it's why the engine note of Italian cars is such a pleasing thing. You know, the Italians will put 12 cylinders into a car where four would do. It's because they get angry so fast. So you, they want to have these quickly accelerating, just like the guy I saw in a Venice airport who accelerated into fury so fast when he found out his he would book he was booked not on the flight he thought he was booked on. What's the matter for you? He literally started jumping up and down, and I'd never seen. My wife is like, he's hopping mad. He's like, hopping. Like you see where the expression "hopping mad" comes from, if you're making fun of Italians like I am in this bit. Right. If you're if you are an Italian sports car designer, you could could potentially get hopping mad. You could take off your hat and throw it at the ground, uh, a thing that has never solved any problem. Gazzofy. What's the matter you? So, Arctic explorers uh, looking for airships would have no choice but to look at these fiery Italians. Arctic explorers who are all very measured Scandinavians who never get mad. Stern Nordic <laughs> men with frameless spectacles. They just suppress all their anger and they turn it into diamonds. <laughs> but, but uh, so an unlikely partnership forms in this we're, case. Between, we're making broad generalizations about European people, that, which, that's is okay. a, which is the thing we are authorized to do. Different kinds of white people, it's still totally okay to make fun of how they throw their hats yeah. at the ground yeah. and yell at uh, airline clerks. Italians wear, wear bright colored uh like overalls and are constantly trying to solve puzzles. And they're constantly trying to hug their mama from a behind while she's a stirring the sauce. Probably. So uh, we see an odd uh, partnership forming here between Roald Amundsen, one mm. of the Norwegian men, one of the world's leading and most ambitious explorers, and, uh, you know, expert on the North, and Umberto Nobile, a, mm. an Italian, an excitable Italian Zeppelin maker who likes to throw his hat on the ground. Is he Nobile? I don't know if he's from, uh, you mean like, is he from noble blood? I don't think so. It's, does he have a noble disposition? Is he a noble gas? Uh, he does not seem to have a particularly noble disposition. He seems like kind of a, a scheming, slinking Mediterranean Ooh. of the kind who's often dragged into um, uh, consulates and police stations. Sure, sure. I get it. I don't, I don't want to. I don't know. Uh, we'll see later in the story that uh, that he's he's one step ahead of the straight shooting Amundsen at, at many steps, but uh, but Amundsen agrees to buy from Nobile one of his N one Zeppelins. This the, is circa uh, mid twenties. Uh, the the, the ex- expedition finally ends up happening in nineteen twenty six. So this is after the poles have been conquered. We have arrived in, in at all of the polls by various means. Well, that's an interesting 
question. Hmm. Amundsen's expedition arrived at the South Pole fully 15 years earlier in 1911, beating Robert Scott's doomed expedition by just a matter of of weeks. But he chose the the South Pole expedition because he felt that the North Pole had already been conquered by Peary. (sighs) Yes. At the time, it was widely believed that not just one, but two expeditions had been to the North Pole, both controversially, uh, as we shall see. Well, we can cover it now. Frederick Cook uh, said he'd been to the North Pole, and we now believe that he was almost certainly uh, a fraud. Really? Yeah, he just took off and uh, waited a while and then came back and said, yep, I've been to the North Pole. It's pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Uh, And and even at the time, his claims were considered controversial. What Uh, drives a person to commit that kind of fraud? I mean, I could see if it was just somebody on on the high street who was like, I'm going to the North Pole. But this is a... This is an explorer person. Uh, uh, well, a... he can get away with it. Like no one's gonna, no one's gonna double check his work. It's crazy. I mean, back then, this was legitimately the this age of uh, the only analogy in living memory for us would be astronauts. Right. An age when every young person in the world just thought these people, real people, the small group of real people, were superheroes. Right. And that was true of these pilot explorers in the twenties. And so this guy could write his own ticket, kind of like the Jacques Cousteau stuff. You know, they he could sell the rights to all his everything. Right. This was a path to international stardom. Right. Uh, a year later, uh, not sure if Cook's claim was accurate. Uh, Robert Peary the, of, of the United States Navy made his expedition with, um, famously with Matthew Henson, uh, African-American uh, aide who may, may have been the first to, to stand on the pole. Uh, who may, they made their land expedition. But, uh, you know, even today, as we shall see, it's not clear whether either of those men stood on the pole. But at the time... Uh, Amundsen and his rivals all believed that somebody had stood on the pole, but nobody had flown over it. This is now the harder task. Oh, right. So you'd think maybe the flight would be first, but no, no. People had maybe walked to it or at least claimed to first. So Amundsen buys a used dirigible from the Italians. It's not quite a blimp, which is just a big bag. Yeah. And it's not quite a Zeppelin. Which is rigid. Which has a skeleton framework with, you know, covered in a a tarp, basically. It's kind of a midway. And I've made the mistake before of thinking that dirigibles must be rigid because it has the same syllable in it. Right. And that's not true at all. Dirigible is just from the French dirigible. Like, if you speak any Romance language, that just means directable. It's steerable. It's a balloon you can steer. Right. So it's not just a a hot air balloon going everywhere the wind blows. doesn't really matter to me. It's... It's you can it's got a, a rudder and an elevator and you can steer the thing and and a motor presumably and, yes and it's yeah. powered yeah, yeah. so uh, this uh, N one is kind of splits the difference between a blimp and a zeppelin it's got like a rigid keel um, but it's not it doesn't have a full framework and it, they reinforce it for the Arctic uh, they buy it for uh, seventy five thousand dollars from the Italians but they agree it's kind of a, a lend lease thing it's it's like a, a car lease where they're gonna be able to sell it back to them for $46,000. And these are 1920s dollars. So you can multiply that by 15 today. Wow. That's over a million. They, they've paid over a million dollars for the best dirigible Italy can offer. Uh, and Amundsen gets the money with the help of Lincoln Ellsworth, an American adventurous son of a coal man who agrees to pitch in 100000 1925 dollars. Uh, and that, that, that only uh, cover a third of the, of the expedition. Um, 
what would that be? 50, uh, one and a half million. So Ellsworth pitches in one and a half million, 2020 dollars, but he needs close to 5 million of our dollars to get this literally off the ground. And the rest he can do with, as I said, the Jacques Cousteau stuff, selling rights to his story, to the newspapers, the, the, the photographs he'll take. Yeah. Merch. <laughs> he's got caps. He's got little, uh, uh, what water bottles right. that say Amundsen challenge coins. <laughs> right. Uh, so between those two, he thinks he can finance the expedition. And as part of the deal with Nobile, he brings the uh, fiery Italian and five Italian crew members. Oh, that's what you don't want. Yeah, this is a recipe for <laughs> delicious food, but possibly disaster. And this is a, definitely an Italian ploy. At the March 29th handover, where the the, the uh, airship is delivered from the Italians to the uh, Norwegian-led expedition, uh, Mussolini himself, the relatively recently installed prime minister of Italy, is presiding, and he sees this as an amazing opportunity to put Italy, uh, uh, Italy's new masculine, you know, yeah. ro- Roman ideal uh, in headlines all over the world. So in the rest of the world, the expedition is the Amundsen-Ellsworth expedition. In Italy, it's the Amundsen-Nobile-Ellsworth expedition in the local papers to show what a leader Italy is and all this stuff. Now, the idea isn't to inflate this dirigible in Rome and fly it to <laughs> the North the Pole. No, the range is uh, kind of limited on these things. So you want the shortest journey possible, which means taking the dirigible up to Oslo and from thence to Svalbard of Seedwald fame, this archipelago, Norwegian archipelago that's about halfway between uh, continental Europe and the North Pole. And that's where all these... Uh, that's where all these expeditions began. Uh, and they arrive at the end of April and are set for a departure from Svalbard a few weeks later. They've built a massive hangar up there. This is kind of their base camp for the pole. Unfortunately, uh, like just a a few days, uh, I think less than a week after arriving, who should show up but Admiral Richard Byrd, Amundsen's American rival. Really? With his Fokker tri-motor airplane. Uh, in which he has decided he's going to be the first to fly over the pole. To fly over in a in an airplane. In a so plane, it, yes. so it's not a it it's a race to fly over the pole. It doesn't matter how you do it. If I, you got up there on a on the back of a giant eagle, that would count. Well, both men believe that the pole has been visited by land. So Amundsen immediately, by all accounts, is a good sport, even though he and Bird are rivals. And Amundsen says, "All right, well, you know, we're still going to be the first to do it in an airship." Right. Because, again, these are competing viable technologies. It's not like it's clear that one of these is doing the cool futuristic thing because airships are are just a different medium than uh, than airplanes. It's the way we would think of, I don't know, trains and subways today or, or, or something like that. For the record, we hasten to add and remind you anytime we get the opportunity, although this is a podcast about the end of the world, we do not believe the end of the world is happening now. A, a, a pandemic with a paltry 0.8% fatality rate or whatever it is, is certainly a great tragedy, but not a civilization ending one, luckily. No, we started making this program in anticipation of a giant meteor strike. A wave of blood. It's not yeah. clear where it originates, but it would be it would be 30 feet tall. Yeah, Cthulhu rising up out of the, yeah, the uh, el- Gulf of Mexico. The Elder Gods, um, some kind of... Uh, mutated, not virus, but like mutated um, 
what, walrus the size of a skyscraper. Yeah, that's the that's the apocalypse that we uh, that we're referring to when we talk about uh, the justification for the omnibus project. Because we were raised on Japanese monster movies right. and comic books. Uh, the the COVID nineteen coronavirus uh, plague is a bummer and uh, definitely a deal changer for the year 2020-21. Something to grieve, whether you've lost someone or just something, because we all have. But fortunately for us, not the end times. And we want to express to you, Ken and I, our appreciation for you, the futurelings of the world who continue to listen to our program and enjoy it. We hope that we bring you some lighthearted distraction and a lot of talk about whatever it is that we talk about on this show, cheese and it's mostly cheese, cheese. It's like 80% dancing girls. It's 80% cheese. Yeah. We do talk about cheese and mail trucks and mail trucks made out of cheese, probably at some Mm. kind of Wisconsin Mm. dairy festival. Mm. Uh, Thank you for those of you who support the show uh, at patreon.com slash omnibus project. It is a great relief to us and, uh, and, and life affirming. And uh, for the record, although we don't think the pandemic is the thing that ends civilization, we think it might be the murder hornets. Murder hornets are a bummer. Uh, they behead bees, which is a bummer. And it's only a matter of time before they learn they to behead humans. Figure out how to behead us. Like, yeah. really, they're working their way up. And yeah. once they get to us, it's over. So it's probably the murder hornets. But this just but be, be reassured, it is not the pandemic. In our lifetime, this is not even the first murder bee to threaten to... Ruin all of civilization. You're talking about the Africanized killer bees? Yeah, right. Yeah. That were sweeping up from South America. There is no new news cycle under the sun. I know. Every unprecedented seeming disaster is an extremely precedented disaster. Well, now, now that they're closing down all the meat processing plants, now it's famine again. Now we're back to famine. It's not famine. We'll oh. just have to eat vegetables. Does that seem worse? My God. It's worse than famine. Animal do you think I am? Anyway, we appreciate your support of Omnibus Project. We've noticed definitely that in the um, in this time when fewer people are commuting, it turns out that commuting is when people a lot of people listen to podcasts. So we're grateful that you are listening to the Omnibus Project. And if it is within your uh, within your means to support the show at patreon.com slash omnibus project, uh, we're also grateful for that support. We are delighted that in a time of a lot of economic insecurity that it uh, we have not, although listenership has dipped with commuters that... Um, it's, pa- dipped, it's dipped across all podcasts. Yes. And, but Patreon support has not. Like, yeah, that's is, wonderful. Isn't that great? Yeah, that's that, lovely. That the, the people are loyal. Thank you. And uh, when civilization returns to normal-ish, to whichever version of normal it is that it returns to, let me encourage you, if... If you have to go back to work, by all means, go back. And if you want to go back to work, by all means, go back. But if you are able to stay home and work and your boss is telling you to come back to work, resist. Tell him to go uh, suck an egg. Say, suck an egg. But you do have to simulate podcast commute listening. Right. By... um puttering around your house for 20 minutes or however long your commute was, making car noises with your mouth and listening to Omnibus. Get a, one of those ears. beds that looks like a race car and spend spend a half an hour uh, in the morning and a half an hour at night going, brum, brum, 
while listening to The Omnibus Project. So the crazy thing about Svalbard is that it is a populated place. It's an inhabited, inhabitable place. But it is so far north. It is way further north than any land in Alaska. Like, um, it's at the 78th parallel. Uh, it would be so far north of Utkiavik, which is... Uh, Utkiavik is at... 71 degrees north, so fully eight degrees further north, and yet it is Svalbard is a it's, what is it full of reindeer is an indigenous Green, Greenland adjacent people. Well, now in seed banks and and whatnot, but it's full of seed banks and abandoned original <laughs> hangers. You know they have they have the uh, the capacity up there to refuel and and to I mean I'm, they've probably got macaroni and cheese and. And uh, and anti-Soviet radar. Yeah, I bet, I bet you there's a Costco. So anyway, <laughs> it's pretty. It's a good place to to take off from. Let's say on Google Earth, you can get really no sense. I should I should mention this for our current uh, listeners of our era who may be looking this up on Google Earth, or who knows, maybe Google Earth exists uh, longer than our civilization did. Maybe you all live in Google Earth. Maybe we're speaking to sentient pixels. <laughs> the planet's dead. Let's all download ourselves into Street View, and we'll at least be able to enjoy. I've been using Street View a lot more in the quarantine, I'll tell you that. Is that right? Just yeah. to see people, the just, front of people's just houses? Just pretend I'm wandering around. Oh, that's I'd like sweet. to see, because I like to pretend my neighbors have blurred out faces on license plates anyway. I don't want to know too much about them. It's sweet and a little weird, which is, which is the very soul of sweetness. <laughs> so on Google Earth, you really don't get a sense of this because Google Earth is Mercator Projection. Right. You cannot tell how, how far Svalbard is from the North Pole because Mercator Projection maps cannot have the North Pole. They will... That you can extend a Mercator projection north infinitely, and it will never reach the North Pole because that's how unfolding a sphere into a rectangle works. Why do why does Google Maps use the Mercator projection, the the universally reviled projection, the lame one that makes Africa look smaller it's than Greenland? So lame. Uh, they had to because the cool thing about uh, Mercator is that it preserves its equiangular; it preserves right angles of latitude and longitude. Right. And when they tried to use a better projection, if you looked at cities on Google Earth far enough north, streets would no longer meet at right angles. You would start to see the curvature of the Earth in the map projection, huh. and it was so. You, and you don't want a city map to have the curvature of the Earth on it. So it's like the first time we ever had a a map that was also a map of every city in the world. So they had to stick with a, an equiangular. Projection. Oh, that's too bad. But aren't there equiangular projections that are better than Mercator that are like that compensate for? I don't know. Even it seems like all the good ones you have to do something at the pole. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um. Even the Robinson or the. Yeah, I don't think there's a good. I don't think there's a good option. Maybe it should switch from something better to Mercator when you get close to the pole. But we that, should that definitely, would not solve our problem. We should talk about this on uh, the internet. But if you go to, or I mean, I'm sorry, we should talk about this on the Omnibus. But if you go to Google Maps and try to scroll up to the North Pole, it won't let you. You'll just scroll forever. It stops. <laughs> That's because they don't want you to see Santa. There's a There's a big black hole up there. That's crazy. Look at that. So this newly reinforced N1 has been rechristened the Norge, which is Norwegian for Norway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Nor Norge. Nor meaning nor and g, I guess is how you say way. <laughs> if you go to Oslo, all the one-way signs say one g, and that's how you know. Uh, they've, uh, they've stripped off the, the, the passenger gondola and replaced it with 
uh, a more stripped down cabin that fits in a larger crew. Cause they're going to try to get 15 people up there. Now, why um, do you need all those? I mean, if you're going in a ship, I understand you need like a, you need a bosun's mate. You need, you need somebody to pipe the captain aboard. <laughs> when you look at a list of the people aboard, they all have responsibilities. You know, there's pilots and riggers and, you know, cause you got, somebody has got to be there to maintain everything on the ship. Oh, sure. Of course. Um, and, uh, and then you get down, and there's one journalist aboard, so there's one civilian. Sure. Tintin. But, but then you and Tintin is aboard. <laughs> right. And then, of course, re- representing Sabina. He's going to bring Snowy, and then... <laughs> Snowy is aboard, interestingly, as we'll see. But then there are like five Italians with no job listed. Just like every episode of a Tintin So they're just story. lolling in their, in their hammocks right. uh, while, the, while the real work gets done, I guess. I'm sure this was part of the, the deal with Mussolini. Um, there is, you mentioned Snowy, but in fact, Umberto Nobile antagonizes his fellow crew members by insisting on bringing his fox terrier, Titina, whom he has rescued from the streets of Rome uh, not long before. Great. Perfect. So everybody's worried about weight, and he's telling them, you can't do this, you can't do that, and then he brings his dog. This so, wormy little street dog and all the food that, that it requires. And Amundsen is you know, nominally the leader of the expedition, but he is a polar explorer with nothing to do because he knows nothing about aerial aeronautics or, or air navigation. Right. So his job is basically to sit and look out with binoculars and see if he can spot any land. Because <laughs> nobody knows if there's, a, if there's a continent up there or not. He's basically. there in his seal skin outfit, you <laughs> right. know, sitting out on the bow with binoculars. He's a man out of time. And Nobile and, and his, and you know, the other uh, pilots are the ones actually running the expedition. Uh, it's very cramped in that cabin. They've actually... One of the other modifications they've made, they've reinforced the nose and the tail. So it's a, it's a little more of a Zeppelin than it was when it left Rome. But they've also taken, uh, they've also built a new keel under the bottom of the, of the, is it still called a balloon? The airbag. Airbag. <laughs> they call it in the trade. The dirigible. And they've used that to connect the main control cabin with the different engine compartments. Uh, and they've covered it with fabric. So oh, so that you can walk between Yeah, them. so the crew can actually like like kind of live in this keel but it's not heated so it's not really pleasant it's not going to be fun up there but luckily um they think it's not going to take that long admiral bird leaves uh in his airplane in his airplane in mid-may and is back 16 hours later and is like yep i just flew over the north pole and amundsen's a good sport and uh congratulates him you know is one of the first out to the tarmac to to congratulate his rival because they're still going to be the first in an airship uh, the the newly christened so so really he, he keeps going because because they're getting that granular like well I was the first one in an airship well I was the first one in an orange painted airship my airship was not named after Norway what do I win <laughs> I mean he's already sold these rights and it's still going to be a big deal because it's you know it's it's a different vibe right it's sure, a group sure, sure. it's a group of men in their undershirts right uh, Our... you know stoking stuff it's not like one guy and a pilot for the better part of a day like it's going to take them a few days to get up there. Uh, and imme- and that turns out to be a problem because immediately it turns out uh, the cabin's very cramped, it's cold, tempers flare because Amundsen's nominally leading the expedition, but he doesn't really have anything to do. And they're not they're not keeping the cabin heated. That seems like one of the first things you would have done. I think even if you keep it as heated as you can, it's still not comfy. Because they ripped all the insulation out. People have to, <laughs> yeah, they had to lighten it up for the dog. People had to. Uh, you know, people are not sleeping really well because most people, they don't have multiple shifts. People are pretty much working around the clock for a few days and it's hard to sleep anyway. Uh, when they get to the pole, they make pretty good time to the pole. Uh, 
and they drop their flags. Uh, and this is when more international tension develops. It turns out that even after all his complaining about weight, Nobile has not only brought his dog, but he has brought a ginormous Italian flag, much bigger than the Norwegian or American flags. Oh, boy. So they drop little tiny Norwegian American flags and then Mussolini's oversized flag of Italian domination. Right. Uh, and when we think of the North Pole today, we think of it as an Italian dominion. <laughs> well, there's still this giant <laughs> Italian flag draped, Blowing around. draped over a reindeer's <laughs> antlers. <laughs> Let me ask you this. This may not be a thing that you know, but I wouldn't be surprised if you did. Is the, uh, do, um, do lifting gases, uh, do, does their behavior change in extremely cold temperatures? Uh, is this a helium or hydrogen lifted gas bag? And if so, I would think that their density would would uh, would change as it got colder. The Norga was filled with hydrogen gas, a famously uh, inert gas that never <laughs> explodes. I mean, it's the be- it has it has better lifting effect than any other gas. But yeah, it's yeah. got it's got its risks that helium does not, um, and colder temperatures, the lifting effect of these gases do decrease with temperature. So as it gets colder, uh, the amount of gas added is less buoyant. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a problem with mm-hmm. Arctic exploration, especially if the temperature decreases as you're going. But it's not, uh, it's not a fatal flaw. No, you can take advantage. I mean, one thing that airship pilots would often do is to take advantage of, of natural differences in temperature. Like they would look for thermal updrafts, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe that's what Admanson was doing. (laughs) I see. I think I see an updraft (laughs) over there, over there. By the way, he did not see any land or islands from the, uh, from the air. So there are none. That's why he didn't see any, uh, on the way back, they start to have problems. They're they're going to go over the pole and their uh, destination is Nome, Alaska. Yep. Um, it's a weird destination, but yes, okay. Well, it's pretty far I, down. I mean, Sabina doesn't run a nonstop there. <laughs> but, you know, Nome is, uh, well, I guess it would have been the the most populated place. Right. right? My, my guess is that's where there's an airfield. Yeah. Right? Um, the problem is they fly into fog, and at those temperatures, fog turns into ice, and right. ice condenses on the outside of your airbag. And so it's a full time job keeping your. Zeppelin, you're dirigible from getting heavier and heavier. Plus, when ice gets in the propellers, this is what happened to them. Uh, it keeps getting spun off by the propellers, and it gets spun into the airbag. Whoa! Little so, sharp knives. Right. Uh, luckily, all it does is it creates kind of dimples in the bag that they need to reinforce. They brought cement to, to repair stuff. It, it doesn't actually puncture uh-uh. the bag, but it's weakening it. So it's a full-time job just keeping their zeppelin from turning into swiss cheese how crazy and and of course you know you could have built some kind of shroud for it but i wonder if that was a thing they only discovered by doing yeah i guess like you'd what you mean just a tougher exterior thing or 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 for the propellers a shroud for the propellers oh interesting uh there they fly into bad at one point there's 150 foot turbulence um they realize they cannot make it to gnome uh oh that's they, a bad realization to have up there um nobile thinks he can put it down he, he ends up being near teller alaska do you know where teller is and or it's new whatever it's new uh inuit name is oh it's not that far from gnome actually yeah teller is um 
it's on what's the name of that peninsula where Nome is? It like I always think of Alaska as a profile facing west, so it's on the nose of Alaska. Uh, yeah, so Teller is on the Seward Peninsula, which is the big, um, which is the big nose. Alaska's schnoz, and it's actually kind of down around on the on the Nome side of it. You know, that's a that is a big peninsula, and um, and it's Teller is pretty close to Nome actually. It looks like you could drive there in, in about three hours. So it's it's a little north of Nome. They were just afraid they would not make it. If there were roads, you could. <laughs> if there were roads. Oh, there is a road. There's the Bob Blodgett Highway. The Bob Blodgett Highway from Nome to Teller? Thanks, uh, pork barrel congressman <laughs> who built that. <laughs> they only have a few hours of fuel left, but apparently Nobile makes a near-perfect landing in pretty difficult conditions. The problem with landing an airship is it'll immediately catch the wind again you have to deflate it really quick oh it's like it's like bringing a, a motorboat into a, a, alongside a dock and then cutting the engine and that's right throwing the ropes if you actually had to change the whole shape of the motorboat right. to keep it there so they immediately have to deflate the bag and everyone is tired tempers are thin uh, amundsen has has called the compared the environment in the gondola to a flying circus mm. uh, everyone is happy to get 20 hours of sleep and a hot meal in from the friendly, delighted residents of Teller, Alaska. I'm sure. Can you imagine? <laughs> what the hell <laughs> is that? sitting there like, did you see what I see? Because they've just been eating chocolate and pemmican. Right. Which um, I have a vague idea of what is. It's like, what is it, jerky? Delicious pemmican is jerky, but it has, you can you can put other stuff. It's like a hard tack. Like it has, oh, it's, it's very dense, high calorie, right? It's, right? it's a lot of reindeer grease or something. Yeah. And you can put like nuts and seeds or, or you know, some kind of grains in it too. It, you can make, it's high nutrition food bef- before, um, before software people came up with a better version. It's, it's the most calories per cubic inch yeah. or something, right? Yeah. That, that's why you're bringing it in your, in your, in your blimp. Pre-soylent. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so after, after getting some well-deserved rest in Teller, they return to civilization or what passes for it in 1926, Seattle. Uh, and uh, and that's where they make their triumphant debut to the world's press. And this is where Amundsen uh, has another bone to pick with Nobile. Nobile, apparently, in addition to, uh, you know, after complaining about weight, then bringing his fox terrier and a giant flag, has brought his Italian colonel's uniform so that when they face the press, everybody else looks like they just got out of a Zeppelin, <laughs> and he's dressed like a colonel in the... Like, he's got epaulets. So in the eyes of the world press, he seems like he's running the show, and sure. Amundsen is pissed. Nobile. Again, well, that's why Nobile is a household name, and <laughs> Amundsen is just a just a historical footnote. They write uh, different ver- accounts of the expedition in the, in the ensuing years, uh, both sniping at the other. Nobile complains that Amundsen was just dead weight, that he said rudder once instead of elevator. Like, hmm. well, this guy shouldn't be in my dirigible. What a fool. Uh, whereas Amundsen uh, talks about how Nobile's navigation was terrible, never knew where he was. He kept almost crashing. So uh, they, they wage a war of words in the press. Now, in hindsight, what's interesting about this expedition is uh, it's quite possible that the Norga was the first human touch of any kind to reach the North Pole. Not not only did it beat not not only did the four tried motor not not beat it just in the week prior, but that no one had ever been to the North Pole. At this if point? Cook's a fraud and Peary thinks he was there, but maybe he was like you know the the best guess is today. I mean, it's still disputed, but there's a lot of people today that think Peary. There's no way he could be he could have been 
any closer than 60 miles from How the pole. is it so hard to know where the North Pole is at this point in time? There's just no pole. You want a striped barber pole, right. like in uh, uh, Chili Willy cartoons. But, uh, but are they not navigating by the stars? There is celestial navigation, but I guess um, for the land expeditions, you don't always have a, a view of the stars. Right. Um, and even the aerial expeditions are making use of... Um, you know, they're trying to calculate ground speed versus airspeed. Is there a problem that the magnetic pole and the pole itself are... Right. You can't use your compass. Right. Like, uh, you're, you're close enough to the magnetic pole that you don't you don't really know what's going on there. So I think it is all celestial navigation. And people have gone through, uh, as recently as 2013, uh, a researcher at Ohio State... I think Ohio State has a bunch of birds' notebooks. And, and uh, so an independent researcher, an astronomer, tried to cut through the decades of complaints where... The National Geographic Society said, Bird is our guy. He definitely got there. And everyone else said, then let us see the stuff. And they said, no. Anyway, an independent astronomer in 2013 finally um, did an independent view of Bird's notes. And his take is that Bird was, did it improbably fast. The 16 hours is so fast he would have had to have kind of record tailwinds, which Bird said he did. But when this guy looked at contemporary accounts from Bird and other weather stations, he thinks he actually would have faced really tough headwinds. Mm. And in fact, he was nowhere closer than 80 miles hmm. of the pole when he breezily got back and said, hey, Rold, just got back from the North Pole. And boy, my arm's tired. Yeah, they say hi. They said hi to your mom. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, he was 80 miles away. Um, he was high enough that the horizon was 90 miles away. He saw the North Pole uh, almost certainly. It feels to me now that being 80 miles from the North Pole would still be a pretty cool get, but it's definitely not the North Pole. Yeah, and it's kind of binary. Either you're there or you're not. Right. And I mean, you got to give somebody a little give and take. I mean, they, without GPS, you're never going to know. Uh, you're in a little tiny plane. Did you fly over it or were you a few miles off? That's yeah. what I said to the captain of the Sabina flight. I was like, <laughs> are we directly over the North Pole? And he was like, yeah. I mean, you know, we all got certificates. He didn't have GPS. Wait, they had certificates on board they ready to break out? that were like, I crossed or I flew over the North Pole on did, Sabina. Did it come with a little crayon so you could do the word, <laughs> do the word search in the maze? <laughs> so it's quite possible that Amundsen was the first. Wow. Led the first expedition to the North Pole. Or Nobile. You, or no, Yeah, if you're in the Italian press, <laughs> Nobile. Uh, he didn't set foot on the North Pole. Right, but he, he did drop a giant American, or a, a tiny American and Norwegian flag. <laughs> and a much larger Italian flag. The story has a kind of ironic and tragic footnote. Uh -huh. Are you okay with this taking an ironic and tragic turn? Did the dog die? <laughs> the dog actually became a worldwide celebrity. Uh, Nobile... <laughs> By virtue of his uniform, Nobile was among those invited to meet um, the uh, the crowned heads of Europe on his way back to Italy. Um, so Tatina the fox terrier met Rudolf Valentino, and he also met President Coolidge, and he also peed on the carpet at oh. the White House. Tatina, apparently not a Lol. Republican. Um, but in 1928, when I assume Tatina has gone on to the, to the happy polar hunting grounds and got eaten by Balto, probably— uh, Mussolini's rise to power is continuing. He wants to continue to establish Italy as a masculine world force. And you know, a great way to do that is invade Ethiopia. <laughs> he had two alert. ideas. Number one, invade <laughs> Ethiopia. <laughs> Find a country that you can you think you can defeat, but then it doesn't go all that well. Number two, uh, reenact the historic 
Norga expedition, but this time with a more patriotically named dirigible called the Italia. Oh, oh, to, so do it again. Yeah, do it again, basically. Not just reenact it like at the Colosseum. Yeah, like, using using like <laughs> <laughs> mannequins. No, to like Apollo twelve, it like send wow. send a new expedition back. Unfortunately, it turns into Apollo thirteen. Uh-oh. Uh oh, because they didn't have any Norwegians. On, uh, yeah, exactly. (laughs) This is what happens when you put 100% Italians. There were just 19 Italians with no job descriptions. (laughs) They're just all yelling at each other the whole time. They were all jumping up and down so much. That's the matter for me. (laughs) The uh, Italia actually crashed on May 25th, 1958. In Milan. No, onto the Arctic ice. And it's really not funny because when when uh, when an airship crashes, it crashes cabin first. Oh. So uh, the cabin gets ripped off. Um, 10 of the crew, plus the dog. Oh, Tatina is there. Wait, I, I misspoke. Really? Tatina is aboard the Italia. I forgot. So 10 of the crew and one dog are left on the ice. The airbag now without the cabin blows away with six other men aboard and is never seen again. They are carried off and presumed dead. Never seen, no wreckage of it ever found. No. Maybe they were the first ones to the moon. <laughs> we, we can't prove they weren't. First Italians on the moon. Uh, so now on the ice, you've got nine. So nine of the 10 survived the crash. Nine of the 10 and the dog survived the crash. Is Nobile on this trip too? Yes, Nobile is there with, with his Italian crew complement, his dog, and they're trying to salvage whatever they can from the wreckage of the cabin. It turns out they have very little food. It turns out they... They think the fastest boat, if they can contact their, um, what do you call it, their accompanying ship. Right, the support Yeah, vehicle. they've got a support vessel. Um, if they can radio the support vessel, um, but the problem is, even if they can do that and it gets there as soon as they can, they've got about 300 calories a day. Huh. So this now becomes a boy's adventure story on the ice. Um not unlike in the novel Futility from they, a recent uh, omnibus. And they just should like, eat the dog. Just like in the novel Futility, they don't eat the dog. They do kill a polar bear which extends their food supplies. Whoa. But the radio doesn't work, and a few men decide to head south, thinking that without a radio, our only chance is to is to just try to reach whatever. Boy, I wish they had... I bet they're thinking, I wish Admonson was here. <laughs> See, that's the irony. Now they're missing Admonson. <laughs> Within a few days of them le- of the, of the, uh, this one group leaving, they managed to repair the radio and send out an SOS, which their control ship, their support ship, the Cite di Milano or whatever it's called, ignores for some reason. Sure. The radio man brings it to the captain and, you know, in the style of the James Cameron movie Titanic, he's like, meh. (laughs) Ah, it's probably some online troll. (laughs) What's the matter you uh, bringing to me this? (laughs) Luckily, a uh, ham radio operator in Siberia. Sure. Here's the message. And informs some of the, my best friends are ham radio operators in, in Siberia. Siberia. I'm sure most of my dad's best friends literally are ham radio <laughs> operators in Siberia. So this Russian ham notifies his government, who notifies the Italian government, which then launches a massive effort. Uh, and you can imagine all this taking place like uh, like guys running down the hallways with their with their shoes clicking. They're probably all wearing sashes. They have to wait in antechambers. It takes a while. And imagine how pissed off Mussolini is at this point. Um, In fact, we know Mussolini is pissed off. He has promoted Colonel Nobile to the rank of general following the successful conquest of the Poland 26. At this point, Mussolini is furious. And it gets even worse when uh, it takes fully 48 days to rescue all the men and their would-be rescuers from the Arctic. 
because a bunch of a bunch of people head north to try to once the word of the crash gets out to try to locate the crash to rescue the men. Uh, when the first plane finally reaches the survivors weeks later, um, Nobile tries to get the most. They only have room for one man. Nobile tries to get the most wounded man aboard, and uh, apparently the Swedish uh, pilot insists that Nobile himself come because he'll be in a better position to to I guess organize the rescue. So Nobile hops in with his dog. So what makes the world's press is Nobile leaving all his men on the ice and reappearing in Sweden with his fox terrier. And Mussolini is furious and immediately busts him back down to Colonel for his offense. Uh, So again, it takes weeks to do this rescue because they have to rescue all the would-be rescuers. And in a final uh, incredible irony, Amundsen... uh, hears about the crash, and even though Nobilia is his rival, he insists on joining the rescue effort. Now, it's not clear whether he really cares about getting these guys off the ice or if he just wants to... Plant his flag on Nobile. Exactly. Show Nobile who's boss and and earn, earn a media win. He wants to win a media cycle. Mussolini insists that Amundsen not be part of the effort, but nobody can stop Amundsen from getting in a plane. Sure, no one can stop Amundsen. So he hops in an overloaded plane to Spitsbergen with four other men... To, to try to find the Italia, and their plane is never seen again. Roald Amundsen actually dies trying to rescue Or his, disappears. Or disappears if, you're, if you think it's UFOs. Or, he could have gone, gone below the surface of the ice. <laughs> and he is never seen again. He's it, living with Santa even now. My theory is he, get, he got blown all the way to the moon where he has had to put up with five, six noisy Italians. It's the ultimate purgatory for him. And that concludes Roald Admonson's Airship. Entry 1077.JE0113, certificate number 23607 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, and you object to Ken's and my characterizations of Italians throughout this entire episode... If we're speaking to sentient Rotini and Fusilli... Sure, or just sentient Italians. Wouldn't that be great? How unlikely. Wouldn't that be great if Italians evolve object permanence sometime in the <laughs> millennia to come? So um, mean! Why are we so mean? I don't know. We, it's, we, because you and I are closet racists, and the only people we can be racist against <laughs> now are Italians. We, I love Italy. It's, it's, we're back to 1905. I love the voluble <laughs> Italian people. We were in... Uh, we were in Venice once with some friends. and, and Oh, now you're going to tell a story about how all, some of your best friends are Italians? No. <laughs> I, I don't have any Italian friends. But one of them had a, a kind of a, a voluble Italian, uh, what, godfather? Not not like mafia godfather, but like a, yeah. a, a distant relative type cousin who uh, who was going to show us around. And he insisted us that, uh, that it was a very short walk to this beach out on out on the Lido. Uh, and he, he took us on this one mile frog march through the Italian sun with all our children win- wilting and holding those little fans, those uh, hold little battery powered fans, except for my daughter who had left hers on the Vaporetto and was screaming. Mm. And he's the whole time he's just cheerful and whistling with his little mustache, just a little bit of farther, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> Chef Boyardee. Right. Uh, so I have a deep love for the endless, indefatigable, and unrealistic optimism of the Italian people. My best friend uh, when I was in junior high and high school was uh, Italian, and his mother was, an, was a, a very voluble Italian lady. 
who um, who was always waiting for us after school with the with a bowl of spaghetti and a harangue. Well, she harangued us. Let's listen to Italians we like. <laughs> um, Marconi. I, lo- I love Marconi. Great. I love uh, Martin Scorsese's mom when when she gets mm. a cameo. She's hilarious. She's she's so sweet. Yeah, I like. Um, um, War- Wario. I like Wario and, and Waluigi. Who's the Who's the girl that directed Lost in Translation? Sofia Coppola. I like her. I like Sofia we Coppola. We love Sofia Coppola, don't we, folks? Uh, who else Who else do we like? Uh, te- mm. Tesla? Was Nikolai Tesla? He was from somewhere. He was he's like Croatian. Albanian or something, right? He's, yeah. Um, he's somewhere Adriatic, but yeah. not quite Italian. Uh, who else do we like? I like Umberto Italian. Echo. Echo. I love the works he's of good. Umberto he's Echo. He's very good. Uh, oh, Oh, Gina Lola Brigida. I love, <laughs> Sophia Loren. I love Gina Lola Brigida. I like what the picture of Sophia Loren looking down, uh, looking down uh, Jane Mansfield's top. Yep, that's a good one. Good, good. Uh, that's better revenge on the Nordic peoples than, <laughs> than uh, dropping a bigger flag on Santa, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, other great Italians, for instance. Um, I don't, I can't we, don't really, like, we don't like Columbus. What I can't meanie. really pick any pope that I like that much more than any other pope. My favorite pope is Argentine. Oh, but my and my least favorite pope is German. Sure. And uh, the oh, Italians. Oh boy! Don't get me started on the Germans. And the Italians are on in the middle. Poof. I like John the Twenty Third better than the Polish guy, so that's one up for Italy, okay. I guess. Good, good. The Polish fella. The Polish fella. That's are you not a fan of the Polish fella? He's fine. He was the one from our childhood. He's like the. He's like the. He was the cute and fuzzy one. <sighs> not that cute, I think in hindsight he wasn't that cute and fuzzy. No, but um, you know he got shot by that one guy and that that Albanian or Turk. Italian, probably. <laughs> who's your Who's your least favorite Italian? I don't like that uh, Giuseppe Zangara that shot uh, FDR. Hate that guy. You don't like that guy? No. Oh, all those bomb throwing Italians of the early 20th century. Boy, they're all bad. What the anarchists. You, what do you hate more from that time? Italian guys with big uh, uh, sparking bombs, or uh, Russian Bolshevik guys with big sparking bombs? Oh, I think. Well, I think the Italian guys, pro, uh, uh, like, actually posed a greater threat to civilization. Yeah, let me ask you this. First, who has better hygiene? And second, whose bomb is most likely to go off? The thing is that the Bolsheviks were trying to to bring like a global communist revolution, whereas the Italians were all anarchists. And as you know... That's your... Isn't that your... Uh, no, you're... you're, you're uh, you think punk rock is bull. Yeah, anarchy is a little bit of a bet noir for me because I'm not a I'm not a libertarian. You like you like uh, orderly city council meetings. Yeah, I believe I believe I believe in communitarianism, <laughs> which is di- it's not communism, but it is an anarchy. It's communism with like two extra syllables. Communitarianism if is you just you add know, a little teria where a bunch of people in the neighborhood that are all wearing different shades, different earth tones of corduroy all come together to debate some you know, like Picayune policy. Oh, so it's nextdoor.com. You've, you've just invented no. nextdoor. No, 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 no. <laughs> nobody's, nobody's peeking out through their blinds talking about like how there are some dark skinned kids in hoodies. Uh, well, anyway, so I was trying to, uh, I was trying to make up for some of our anti-Italian racism, but all we did was just double down on it and, and say even worse things. I think, uh, Gina Lala Brigida fans are now mollified. Nobody else. <sighs> That's Gina Lola Brigida fans, please contact me at theomnibusproject at gmail.com or slide into my DMs on uh, any one of the uh, at John Rodericks that are out there in the world. Gina Lola Brigida, if you're alive and 113 years old, please send John pics. If Gina Lola Brigida is your, is your fashion icon, as she is mine, 
Uh, Ken does not keep his DMs open, so he can't slide into his DMs. Unslideable. So you have to just at him with your sort of not as funny recapitulation of his joke. That's what Twitter's for. Or rephrase jokes. If you want to, uh, if you want to argue with him or correct him or tell him that uh, that he's a, a, a lib cuck, uh, you can go to at Ken Jennings. You can uh, go to our fan groups on Facebook at all, uh, all of them under the Futurelings appellation. You can mail us things, including pemmican. Send us pemmican so we actually know what it is. John seems to think it has uh, sunflower seeds in it. I Homemade disagree. pemmican. There are different pemmicans. Send us all your pemmica. Uh, you can send those to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. And... Hold on, hold on, hold on. A large box addressed to you just came oh. to the post office. Let's open it. It's heavy enough that it looks like it could have been sent media mail, but instead they sent it two-day priority and it cost $37 to get you whatever this is. I'm six feet away. I need a broomstick. Uh, There's literally no way to get this to you. I think you're going to fall out of your chair. No, 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 I got it. I'm a former ski racer. I got good balance. John only had minutes of fuel left when he managed to pull out of that dive. Oh, Foley work. Full of packing peanuts. It's an old navy box repurposed. Got, got to pop the bubbles. It is a stack of magazines. Oh, look at this. Now, this is the result of a communication, a conversation we had on our Facebook fan group, Futurelings. One of uh, one of the Futurelings members. Now, how did this how did this come about, Ken? On one, the the story. on one of the addenda episodes, we were talking about some kind of uh, tractor, some tractor festival in the Midwest. Yeah, tractor festival. But why why were we doing that? It had to do oh uh, it had to do with something train related. There was an old timey steam locomotive, maybe that you could take out to see the trains. Well, I, now I, we were talking about oh, we we were talking about old tractors and restoring old tractors, which was a thing that I felt like old tractors. Uh, we got into that conversation somehow. Old tractors, and one of our futurelings said, uh, "Restoring old tractors is." It was in, the death of trolleys. That's right. The, oh, the death of old trolleys. trolleys. That's right. Restoring old tractors is definitely a hobby, and that this person themselves published a uh, a magazine about old tractor restoration called Antique Power. And uh, and I responded to that by saying, that sounds like the coolest magazine I've ever heard of. Why do I not have a subscription to Antique Power? And our correspondent replied, I will send you that immediately. His name is Brad Bowling. Thank you, Brad. And he is vice president of editorial at Ertel Publishing. Can you toss me one of those? Uh, yeah, I'll I'll hand sanitize it before I. Well, yeah, you don't don't screw it up. Oh boy! Oh, you already screwed it up! What a beautiful! You had it in your hand one second. What a beautiful tractor! What a nineteen a beautiful nineteen thirty eight Sears Economy is on the cover of the March April twenty twenty. It's it's bi monthly copy of Antique Power, the Tractor Collector's Magazine. And I I said in the course of that conversation online, I said how like what is the circulation for antique power magazine. It seems like a pretty specialist or niche magazine. And he he said something to the effect that 
they had 50,000 subscribers, making it like a like, more popular magazine. It is, it than, is the eighth most popular magazine <laughs> in America at this point. Yeah, right. They but just also, passed Entertainment Weekly. More, more bi-monthly sub- subscribers than, uh, than any album I've ever made. <laughs> you know, just like, just right up there. And then they also published Vintage Truck Magazine. Look at this beautiful 1930 Huber 4062. Oh, this makes me so happy. This is exactly the kind of coffee table magazine that I love. This thing sells... You know how the stranger can't sell an ad that's not a cannabis shop? Yeah. This thing has literally hundreds of ads. Everything from hardware stores, including Harbor Freight, all the way down to um, classified ads, people looking for parts, people looking to sell parts. You have to guess that the people that are subscribing to antique tractor magazines are also the type of people that still buy things from print advertising. And it's really national. Like, I'm going to go to Olson's Gaskets in Port Orchard, Washington, because they sell old tractor gaskets. Well, apparently there's a tractor museum here in Centralia, Washington that we should go visit as a field trip when we are no longer quarantined. I have to say, these old tractors are kind of beautiful, and I didn't think I was going to say that. They're amazing. And uh, you can subscribe to Antique Power for $30 a year, and that is great. Plus, you get a three... Well, here's why there's so much advertising. When you subscribe to Antique Power, you get a free 30-word classified ad for subscribers, which is a $90 value. You should subscribe and then just put in an ad for Omnibus. Well, we should put in an ad. (laughs) Why are we not cross-promoting? This is wonderful. And this is a wonderful... And he also sent a John Deere hat and a belt buckle from from the fire department. Well, it's just like... It's just sort of a universal fire department belt buckle. Stolen valor. (laughs) Uh, that is wonderful. Thank you so much, Brad. I'm. Um, oh, and he says he and his wife are rooting for you on TV, so that's kind of a, a ding. But uh, but otherwise, he seems. Why like is a nice that a person. ding? Oh, I see. It's I'm a ding just, for you. I'm just tired of people celebrating you. Uh, there's a. It says here. Oh, the King Agricultural Museum in Centralia has over 70 rare and unusual tractors. Rare and unusual. Um. Oh, and he coins a he coins a term here. What what toin, a, a term has he coined? The Omnibunker. Oh, where we record from a little portmanteau. It's a little bit of an Omnibunker. I well, love it. That, the, this letter is the gift that keeps on giving. And not only does he imply that an Omnibunker is where we record, but he he says that it's a generalizable term that other omnibus adjacent spaces like a tractor museum could also be could, an Omnibunker. Could be Omnibunkers. I like it. Well, uh, anyway, thanks so much for that. Uh, and I think uh, that this is an example of what uh, what can happen. He also uh, describes himself as a Patreon subscriber. Oh. So he helps support the show at patreon.com slash omnibus project. Thank you, Brad. Thanks, Brad. And, you know, in hindsight, I shouldn't have implied that he could have sent those media mail. Magazines that contain advertisements are not uh, eligible for... U.S. Postal Service media mail. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Even when they're collected in a box. Yeah. Even even if it's like an old, uh, like I like if I try to buy comic books on eBay sometime, which is not beyond the realm of possibility. Sure. I, let's assume it's happened. Let's assume that's happened once or twice today. Like the person on the other end will often be like, "I can't send this media mail. It has advertising in it." And I'm like, "Yes, it has." Ads from 1983 for Gumby Pops, a lollipop that Gumby enjoys. No, sea monkeys. Start your own sea monkeys. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 
oh, these trucks and tractors and fire trucks. It's like, it's like these are vroom, magazines. Vroom. These are magazines for seven-year-old boys who are seven. From seven to seventy, everyone enjoys vintage truck magazines. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray the catastrophe fear may never come. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But at least our species got to the North Pole and survived for almost a century afterwards. If providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs> <laughs>